Hi, this is Open Arted, a podcast exploring why making art can be more practical than we think. Today we are going to talk about learning and brain work. You will hear a conversation with an educator, writer and author, Barbara Oakley. Barbara Oakley is herself very passionate about learning and has been investigating the topic of learning for many, many years. She wrote uh, my favorite book, Learning How to Learn, and let me list some education which Barbara has. So here we go. PhD in Systems Engineering at Auckland University, Master of Science in Electrical and Computer Engineering, Auckland University, Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering, University of Washington, Bachelor of Arts in Slavic Languages and Literature, University of Washington, United States Army Signal Officer Course at Georgia, Defense Language Institute at California. And just before I give you a little introduction to our conversation with Barbara today, I would like to thank all my patrons who support Open Arted. And if you would like to support this project monetarily, you can do that by visiting www.patreon.com slash Monika Maszanowskaite. So few things you need to know before you listen to this conversation. With Barbara, we are going to talk about two different major learning systems. And I asked Barbara to clarify it. What is the difference between these two systems? And I would like to read you a little description. It turns out that there are two major learning systems in the brain. The first is the declarative system called that because you seem to be consciously aware and can thus declare what you are learning. The declarative system places information in long-term memory via the hippocampus. The second is the procedural system, a very different brain system for learning habits. This is a system you learn through when you do things repeatedly. So when you are learning to type by touch, you first learn to type through your declarative system. So for example, you hit the letter H, which is hit with right index finger. But as you learn and practice lots more, you begin to learn to hit the letter H, along with all the other letters through your procedural system. Once you've learned through the procedural system, you can type very fast indeed. So the declarative system is fast to learn but slow to use. If you just type with your declarative learning, you'd be really slow. But your procedural system is slow to learn but fast to use. Once you've learned which keys are which and practice, you can type really, really quickly. And lastly, there are two words I would like to clarify before we hear Barbara speak. She used a lot the word basal ganglia, which I googled and uh, found out that basal ganglia are a group of structures found deep within the cerebral hemispheres. It is primarily responsible for motor control as well as motor learning, behaviors and emotions. Another term which Barbara used is hippocampus. Hippocampus is a part of your brain particularly important for remembering facts and events. And finally, let's hear conversation with Barbara. Barbara. 
so nice to meet you, Barbara. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. <laughs> oh, no, it's my pleasure. And it's actually your, you know, what you're doing is such a fascinating topic. And I think that I have a lot of information to share that you might find useful and helpful. Yes, I, I remember the first time I think I saw your YouTube video about learning and then I didn't know that there is a book and then somehow the book came to me and I read the book and uh, it's really fascinating, everything about the brain. And of course, because, you know, I'm learning every day. <laughs> so That's right. That's right. Barbara, I have uh, some key words about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Passionate about languages, radio operator at South Pole Station. Translator on a Russian fishing boat. And finally, electrical engineer. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, all of that with a bad memory. So I do the best I can given the tools that I have. <laughs> so how all this information fits into one person, tell me. Let's see. I guess it's luck. Because some sometimes adventurous doors would open for me, and I I was lucky enough to say yes or to have people that encouraged me to say yes. For example, um, going to work out on Soviet trawlers as a Russian translator. At first, I said, "No, I'm having more fun studying chemistry at the university," and I mentioned that to my father, and he said, "You what? You turned." down the opportunity to go out and work on Soviet trolls. And my father, he, ne he was always very supportive of whatever I did. And the fact that he, you know, was a little upset about that really took me aback because he always liked whatever I did. So that made me uh, change my mind and go work out on Soviet trawlers. And of course, that led to more adventures and more adventures And more adventures. So it's just, it's a bit of luck and a lot of great people. And I ended up at the South Pole Station in Antarctica, where I met my husband. And I always say I had to go to the ends <laughs> of the earth to meet that wonderful man. So I'm a very, very lucky uh, woman, that's for sure. Wow, such an incredible story. And how come learning became your passion? I was learning about how people really think, why they do good things, why they do bad things. And I was studying, this was all while I was a professor of engineering. So I was secretly studying and working on my uh, second book, which was, uh, it was called Evil Genes, Why Rome Fell, Hitler Rose, Enron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend. So uh, I just, I was trying to figure out why my oldest sister seemed to have psychological problems and she would do mean things to people. And it wasn't like she was evil inside mostly, but she would really do evil appearing things to, to people. And I wanted to know why that was. So I first I, I finally found a term called malignant narcissism and in the psychological literature. And I was like, great, they understand this. I'm going to 
you know, finally discover why my sister is doing these unusual things. And, but then when I looked in the psychological literature about, about malignant narcissism, it turned out they didn't know anything from a scientific foundation. There was no fMRI studies or anything. It was just sort of built on thin air. They're all citing one another, but no scientific foundation. And I thought, wow, there's no there there. And the whole discipline of psychology seems to be unaware that there, there's no science really underneath at all. I mean, there was zero, um, at the time I was looking, there were zero uh, scientific research studies. And so I, um, you know, wrote that book on that. I learned a lot about psychology and what psychology thinks they know, but they didn't know. And uh, what neuroscience knew, which seemed to be a lot more, and uh, and genetics, and, and I tied that all together. And I was kind of looking at you know, nasty people. And then I looked at pathological altruism, which is people doing good things that end or things they think are good, but they end up supporting sort of those uh, nasty, successfully sinister sorts of people. But then after some years, I was like, you know, I'm focusing on all these bad people or people doing what they think is good things, but it's actually bad. Why don't I focus on something positive like education? And one of my students asked me one day, you know, how'd you change your brain from being terrible at math and science when you were in, in um, you know, high school to being really good at math and science and getting a, a, you know, a doctorate in engineering. And I'm just now a distinguished professor too. So I'm like, I'm the real deal. But um Congratulations. I, oh, I was so uh, surprised and happy. But anyway, um, so I wanted to, um, you know, I just thought all this information I've gotten before from studying psychology and uh, cognitive psychology and neuroscience and so forth, why don't I apply that to answering the student's question about how I was able to change from a linguist to uh, become a professor of engineering when I was an adult. Um, I didn't even start until I was age 26. I began studying remedial high school algebra. And um, so, you know, I just thought, oh, I'll look into education. And I thought, oh, that's such a nice, pleasant area. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Actually, it, it turns out that it's really good to know about um, things like the successfully sinister and about pathological altruism as well as neuroscience and so forth. When you're, when you're trying to figure out what's going on in education, because it's, um, it's a very complex field and there are all sorts of motivations in learning and in teaching, some of which are great, some of which are maybe not so great, but I, I kind of fell into it again accidentally, but it's such a rich and um, fascinating discipline that I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sticking around here for a little while. Mm. I really liked what you did in your book, the learning how to learn, that you included stories from people who were not really great learners or, you know, for example, there was uh, Nelson 
Dallas or Santiago, Ramonica Hall, and that they were actually struggling in the beginning and then they found their way. So, yes. I think part of that arises because uh, I was such a terrible learner myself. And I still, I, I mean, I really have to struggle in my learning. But I'm fascinated by all sorts of learning about all sorts of different things. But I guess it's a backhanded way of saying um, all of these people are doing really good things, even though they're seemingly really bad learners. And so it kind of motivates me that I can still be successful, even though I'm not the greatest learner either. Maybe you could share your favorite story of one of My these people. Favorite story. Oh, um, I really, so there's, there's so many. And the first to pop to mind is Zach Caceres. And I met him, he's an American, but he was working at the time in Guatemala. And Zach is, you know, he, he was doing terribly at school. So, and it, it was actually, he was being bullied very badly. And, um, uh, and he, he, you know, the school was not the best school at all. So he just quit going to school and, but he hid it from his parents. So finally, one day they caught him, his mother caught him hiding. I think it was, maybe he was hiding in the bushes uh, when the bus went by. And so she discovered that he had dropped out of school. And so he ended up, um, you know, she, they had a big family meeting and he decided to, to just drop out of school and, and teach, you know, just do self-teaching, homeschooling. And, um, you know, because his family didn't have a lot of time to devote to teaching him. But he ended up going to um, a, a very good university in New York City and, um, you know, getting a... Um, a double degree, I think it was magna cum laude. And they found out just as they were about to award the degree that he didn't have a high school diploma. So he had, here he is like this superstar student at the university. And so he had to go back and get his GED because, you know, so, you know, he turned himself around from flunking out of high school to, doing really, really well at the university. And now he's a, he's an expert coder and has, you know, he's, he's learned how to learn. And, and that's something that I think homeschooling and self-schooling can really help people do. So um, I just, um, I, I really uh, admire and respect. And I think that's something that our school systems do not do enough of they subliminally teachers can't help but want to have students depend on them so they do not encourage students to become self-sufficient learners who learn on their own and so that's almost something that we have to overcome when we get out of school in order to become lifelong learners hmm. it's funny because it, it also happens in music because, you know, in, in music education, we keep studying until, sometimes until 30s. 
like my my boyfriend just finished his uh, second masters and he is third uh, he's going to be 30 this june but in music it's kind of normal to have you know many teachers continue studying but then it's a little bit weird because you no longer know you know how to work on your own i mean you do it kind of out of intuition but at some point you feel like you need some kind of advice you know right I do think music is a little different. Music is is something where you can do a lot on your own, but you do need some guidance sometimes, you know, mm. from instructors. And they, they really do make a big difference. True. Um, and and it, it's interesting because for Zach, his big turning point was that he became fascinated by the guitar and he decided that he wanted to try to learn the guitar. So he found that was like the earliest days of online teaching. And he, he found uh, someone who would kind of coach him a little bit, but he felt that the discipline of learning how to learn music, you know, and how to play a musical instrument is actually what turned his whole um approach to learning around and gave himself gave him the self-discipline he needed to be able to to go forward and i do think that music learning music is it's like almost like learning chess in some sense it it teaches you that you learn in bits and pieces you practice you fit those pieces together you get bigger uh you know, pieces of knowledge, and then you can use that knowledge to to even build bigger knowledge. It's like the perfect prototype for how you learn in almost anything. Hmm. I never, ever thought about it in such a way. Wow, <laughs> really fascinating. So, you know why I actually started reading your book? Because I wanted to speed up my learning process at the piano. <laughs> ah, well, I think there's there's a lot of so there's two different things going on. Um, I remember when I was studying engineering, I was I, I I got to this one page, and I said I am not going to turn the page until I understand this page. And I stared at that page for like three hours, and then I accidentally turned the page and took a glance, and I was like. Ah! That's what I didn't understand. It's right there on the next page. And I remember telling myself, you know, doesn't anybody know how to teach about how to learn more effectively? You know, because I'm clearly going off track and doing really stupid stuff in how I'm trying to approach my learning, even though I'm very diligent and very dedicated. And so in some sense, uh, you can't, speed your learning. Like if you're learning something really difficult, it's going to take time. And, and there's very little way, maybe aside from a cup of tea that you can learn more effective or more quickly from that sense. But there are lots of things you can do to help yourself learn more quickly in the sense of, um, getting rid of all distractions, 
focusing more intently, knowing that when you get stuck on certain passages or certain things that you, you need to step back and take a break, that you should only really uh, focus intently for so long because after that, it's not going to be that much more effective. Um, and I understand from, um, let's see, Eric Anders' work is, um, or Anders Ericsson's work is, I'm always swapping those two around, but he's the, he was the expert on experts. And what he found was that, for example, concert pianists, they will practice, for example, maybe around four to maximum six hours a day. Sometimes they will do more, but it really isn't that effective after you get get outside that that central four to six hour zone. Is that what you find too? Or it's funny because I found that two hours is actually the best time for me. You know, so I can if I practice every day for two hours, really focused. I can keep going every day like this. And, you know, by the end of the month, I have practiced, what, 40 hours on one piece, and I actually feel the results. Right. And uh, two, But I would say that two hours works only if I learn new material. Because, you know, when I learn a new piece, I feel like I just can't put any, uh, any more inside. I think it's the cognitive load you were talking about. Right. And then once I feel that the piece is already much more advanced, I can practice for hours right. because my mental energy is is not so crowded anymore, you know? Right. You know, I think that's similar for me. When I'm working on a, a really, really difficult piece of writing, for example, I can do a little bit more than two hours if it's um, not super, super difficult. So I can do about four hours. So two hours are super difficult, four hours altogether of, you know, including some uh, somewhat less. And so my my most bestest self is those first two hours. And then everything after that is like, I can still work, but uh, it's starting to diminish somewhat in the returns that I'm getting. So usually by the end of the day, I'm, I'm trying to do super easy stuff like, oh, let's proofread this uh, set of citations, which is pretty mindless, but it's the best use of my, my mental energy at that time. Hmm. So I, I think that's probably in line with what, um, Anders Ericsson had found, but, you know, he was very much along the lines of, you just can't be efficient mentally all the time. You know, you have certain amounts of, of, of mental energy that you can really use. I, I think unless you're Einstein or something, because uh, they would remark that Einstein could just work endlessly, um, you know, and relentlessly on problems. So it's, it's quite interesting mm. altogether. So when I was reading in the book, I was trying to find ways to help me, but somehow it always felt that, you know, playing the instrument and playing piano especially is something different and it requires different rules. It requires muscle memory, uh, 
you know, auditory memory, uh, visual memory, and all these different uh, aspects. But in the book, you say that it's exactly the same as kicking a ball or studying math. So if you could tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so this goes to those two different pathways of learning. Um, and I, I think I actually understand this much more now after um, researching this area. So you are right. Uh, learning, uh, learning in a, a musical instrument is far more involved in an obvious way of what's called the procedural system. That's the system that forms by habit. It often involves physical skills, but it does involve mental skills as well in part. Um, so like if you look at an equation and the equation is one over one over K, you can flip that and see quickly that that is just K if you've done it a lot. And it turns out anyway. So let me back up a moment. There's two pathways of learning. One is the declarative pathway that goes through the hippocampus and it deposits your um, these sort of connections between neurons in long-term memory. And that's sort of like, that's your memory. So you can deposit through the declarative system through the hippocampus, and you're conscious of learning that way. So what we're talking about now where I'm explaining this, that is declarative learning. But procedural learning goes through the basal ganglia, and you're not consciously aware of how your basal ganglia is learning this material. All you know is you're telling your fingers, fingers, play this piece on the piano or this little part, and your fingers do it, and that you, you can see whether and hear whether or not you got it right. So you can see the results of it, but you can't see the intervening pathway. You don't know how that, that procedural um, basal ganglia system is actually learning. You can only say, do this. Oh, did you do this? Oh, no, let's try again. Do this. Did, it, did you do it? And you can't see how it's learning, but it is learning. And it takes a lot of practice to learn. So when it does it successfully and you've learned it, it there's these also these links in long-term memory. But they're a different set of links to what you've learned declaratively. So you have like two sets of links about most things you're learning, a declarative set and a procedural set. So most of what you do as physical skill is more procedural learning. A lot of what you learn in school is more declarative learning. But let's say when you are reading a, a set of notes of music, you are using both your declarative system to read those notes but you're also using your procedural system because you quickly know what notes to press by looking at that note on the page. So both systems are working together in your learning uh, and in what, in what you're doing. Um, but 
for physically physical plus mental skills like playing a musical instrument you're often much relying much more on that procedural habitual type of learning and that means you've got to practice a lot but when you've really got it down you don't even have to think about it it's it's almost like a habit it's so easy to do and you can be totally nervous in front of a gigantic audience and you don't in some sense you kind of don't need to worry about it because you just let your procedural system do what it's going to do and you don't even have to think about what you got to do because your fingers already know what to do if that makes sense it does but actually i would like to stop you here because this okay. was my listener's question it it happens very very often that you know we practice i don't know half a year the piece everything is automatic as you said we know it really well And then on the day of the concert, you sit and play and you realize that you no longer remember the notes. Uh-huh. But, oh, but do you stop playing at that time? Or do you just keep playing anyway? I'm, I'm not quite clear. Yes. Do you mess up? Sometimes we mess up, but of course we never stop. But it's just this phenomenon that it feels like you really know the piece. You have practiced it slowly. You internalize it. You know it uh, mechanically. You, can, you know, everything is there. But suddenly when you are stressed, you start thinking, okay, I don't know this bit. And you start playing and you actually don't know it. It feels like uh, your muscle memory is actually is there, but your uh, conscious mind is thinking about the notes and you'll no longer know it. And it happens only under stress. So what is happening, you know, and so this is a hypothesis, but I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. Um, As soon as you consciously begin thinking about what you're doing, you throw yourself out of the procedural system. So you, when you are playing away, you're totally relying on the procedural system. As soon as you start consciously thinking, you're no longer. Remember, procedural is unconscious. Declarative is conscious. When you start to become you know when you start to think about what you're doing you're you're going out of that procedural system so it's important you know it's like when you're becoming a good archer and you're you know drawing back the bow and you're zeroing in on your target when you do that uh, if you start consciously thinking too much about how to aim you you will mess up But if you just, as you know, as the archer, uh, the teacher of archery will say, be one with the arrow. Just, you know, let that habitual system keep complete control. Because as soon as you start consciously thinking about it, um, that's where you choke. So, you know, if there's ways to kind of avoid becoming conscious, just go with the flow. Let that procedural system dominate. And so you're not conscious of it. Um, I know that when I had to first give a TED talk, I practiced for 70 hours, which is for a 20-minute presentation, which is what they say normally you should do to practice for a TED talk. You could have hung me upside down and my mouth would still have come out with those words. I was so terrified, but I just let, you know, I, I like, just tried not to 
be conscious of it. I just let my mouth do what it was going to do. And, and then I was along for the ride and it, it really helped me a lot to not choke under that pressure. Hmm. I wonder if it has something to do with the load of information, because, you know, it's not that we have to play six minutes on stage. Sometimes we have to play one hour of different material, which we have mm -hmm. to memorize. And you, we su mm -hmm. we supposed to memorize all of it. But uh, I, I wonder if, if it can be that the load is uh, too big to comprehend for everyone. Well, certainly, you know, and again, I'm, I'm just kind of hypothesizing here. If you have shorter pieces it's easier to get those into your procedural system because you've got to practice a lot to get even a short piece into those links in long-term memory. And that means that if you have a much longer piece, you've got to practice a lot more to get that entire thing in your procedural memory uh, or in those procedurally developed sets of links. So it just takes a lot more practice um, to make it so it's automatic and you don't even think about it. So maybe it's that uh, longer pieces take way more practice. And, you know, and if you hadn't ha haven't had the time to do that, it may seem like, um, because your long-term memory actually can hold enormous enormous amounts of information. And um, so if you're, if you've really got it in there, even if it's short or even if it's long, you sh you'd be able to play it. But getting it in there, that's the question. Uh, you know, getting it in there really well through the procedural system takes a lot of time. Mm. But I understand that long-term memory is where you remember things forever, kind of, a little bit, right? Kind of. I mean, you know, experts in memory will say, well, it can change a little bit over time or even a lot. But mostly that that's the case. And that's why, see, as soon as you get that the hippocampus is out of the picture, if you've practiced way enough, so it's like you've got it really embedded in long-term memory. And this is actually a really good question. It, how much of practice in a procedural skill like learning to play the, the piano, how much of your links are declarative and how much of your links are procedural? And if you get the hippocampus out of the picture by practicing a whole bunch, um, does that matter much for procedural learning, which actually takes place through the basal ganglia. Uh, I, so I'm asking these questions, but they're, they're kind of bizarre and very deep questions. So I wish I could answer them. And I'm not sure that um, neuroscientists themselves can answer them. Mm. There's still even a very big question about how working memory is able to reach into long-term memory. Uh, there's lots of different theories and ideas about it. Probably one of them is right, but we don't know which one yet. Mm. So hippocampus is the place where the short memory kind of happens, right? All the, the information is digested there. Right, right. So there's working memory, which is sort of like short-term memory that you hold 
a few pieces of information in mind at once. So if I gave you the number 2934, you could hold it by repeating it in your memory or, you know, or a slightly longer memory. So working memory can talk either to the hippocampus and send information to long-term memory, or it can talk directly to long-term memory if you've really learned it well, or it can send a signal into the basal ganglia where the, you know, where it can tell that little black box of, of procedural learning, I want you to hit that tennis ball, or I want you to play this chord on the piano. Uh, um, And then that comes out of there. But the hippocampus is related to declarative learning. And that's it. You are exactly right. It kind of holds stuff temporarily. It can hold more than working memory can, because working memory can only hold four things. The hippocampus it's not really holding things. It's actually serving as an index, but it you can kind of think of it as it can hold a lot more stuff than, than working memory can. So you can cram some information, for example, the night before a test, do really well, and then you forget about it right after the test because you only had the, the sets of links really... Uh, embedded in the hippocampus, not so much in long-term memory in the, in the neocortex. So hippocampus is more like for cramming, but, um, you know, does the basal ganglia do that kind of thing for procedural learning? I, is there such a thing as cramming when you're playing a piano piece and learning how to play it? What do you mean cramming? I'm not sure I'm familiar with this word. Okay, so let's say that you have a big test on European history the next day. And so you didn't study anything all semester, but you stay up all night or like for hours. You spent the whole day, the day before, just like cramming every bit of information you can get about European history into your mind. And it's mostly cramming it into your hippocampus. The next day, you kind of do okay on the test. Mm. But then long-term, you can't remember. You forget it as soon as the test is done because you haven't created sets of links in long-term memory. You've really only stuck it in the hippocampus temporarily. And I mean, is there something analogous to that when you're playing the piano? Really, really not. <laughs> like if, oh. if you start one day before, it's, it's just... It's impossible unless you have to play something really not technically hard and you have a score. Okay. And uh, that because there is another um, another skill which is sight reading. You know that you are really good at reading the score and playing it immediately. There are exceptions. There are people who can do that. Maybe they're like Einstein a little bit. <laughs> But in general, piano requires especially piano, because there is so much material, you know, you have a left hand, you have a right hand, you have so many notes, and it requires time. And this is what you talked about, this cycles of learning and sleeping, learning and sleeping. Right. Um, well, that's, um, that's fascinating. And I think that really demonstrates that learning declaratively versus learning procedurally are really dramatically different. Um, they're, they're different ways of learning. 
Um, mm. I also wanted to say that, you know, I asked myself and I wanted to ask you why, for example, I cannot remember mm. the pieces which, you know, it feels like I stored in the long-term memory. I could play it really well. I performed it really well. And after a year without practicing, I can no, lo no longer play it. Oh, okay. So I'm going to answer that question. But um, first, let me answer some, a question that didn't really come up, but it's very much related to, um, let's see. Uh, so it fell out of my working memory, but it was all about working memory. Oh, so people who are good sight readers of music, it turns out that in general, they have really, really good working memories. And that's what allows them to quickly see something new, um, you know, on the page of the, the notes and be able to kind of tell their fingers that that's what they've got to be doing. It's really good working memory that allows them to do that. So in long-term memory, those, the neurons are connecting with one another. So let's simplify. Let's say that you have 100 neurons that connect together as you are learning to play a, a, a little part of a piece, you know, on the piano. So, I mean, this is super simplified, but like, a, let's say 100 neurons for 30 seconds of, uh, of piano playing, which of course is, it's actually thousands and thousands and thousands. But anyway, so each of those neurons is connected by a synapse. They're like where they come up against each other. It's called a synapse. And when you practice more, those synapses actually get bigger and they get stronger and they have more connectivity. So that's the case when you practiced, they get bigger and bigger and stronger. But when you don't practice, these neurons kind of go, huh, you know what? It doesn't look like this is actually needed. Let's take a few away a few of these, these things. You know, uh, you know, we really don't need that. You know, she's never using it. Let's sweep away a few more of these connections. And so if you don't use it, like at least a little bit to refresh those connections, unless it's a very old and a very powerful memory, it can fade away and become more difficult to access. So for example, when I learned Russian, I could speak it very well. But then I didn't practice with it for like 25 years. And I became very, very rusty unless somebody gave me a glass of vodka or something <laughs> like that. Then it would seem to come back. So that's why it, it just, if you're not using those connections, you lose the, you can lose those connections. Mm. And uh, I just wanted to uh, go back a little bit to the question when I asked about, you know, stress and losing a memory. And um, maybe you have an idea why, under stress, you suddenly turn on your conscious thinking. Because, you know, we should, like, just let go and play what we know. But suddenly, we have all this conscious thinking, what is the note? What is the note? Right. That, that's a very deep question. Um, what switches us to that? Because you can... 
under severe stress, you can still act the way you want to act. But I think that you learn to handle the stress differently. So it could be, okay, and again, I'm just thinking out loud here. The way you breathe makes an enormous difference in the stress levels experienced by your body. You can actually breathe in a way that can cause you to become much more highly stressed. And part of that is if you take short, quick, light gasps of air. So like you, you know, uh, what you're doing is you're not giving your body enough oxygen and you're, you're actually causing your, you know, part of your nervous system to become activated. And it's the part that gets really super stressed. So my guess is if you can become more conscious of your breathing, that you could actually get access to keep yourself from becoming so stressed that you pop out of that procedural um, flow of things. There's a great book called Breath by Mark Nestor. And it is, it, it is a wonderful exposition. And, and I see bits and pieces emerging from top neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists that I know, who I really respect, that in the future, we may be able to improve our ability to perform and learn and learn by controlling how we breathe. So I, you know, I wonder if you might explore, like read that book by Mark Nestor and try to explore whether certain modes of deep breathing can help keep those um, different neurotransmitters from being released that cause you to feel so much stress that you pop out of, um, out of that procedural flow. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, it's true that we, we hold our breathing, especially when you practice something difficult, difficult technically, you know, you suddenly feel that your breath is all up there. <laughs> right. Instead of down deep yeah. part of, so when, when you get really, a, uh, when something scares you, there are typically three reactions that the body has fight, flight, or freeze. So when you're in front of a big audience, you, if you're really kind of nervous, your tendency is to kind of freeze because you can't, you can't run away and you can't like fight with the audience. You don't feel like that. So you freeze and you may not freeze with your fingers, but you freeze with your breathing because think about it, it from an evolutionary perspective. If like, let's say you see a bird in a tree and you point to the bird and it, you know, to, uh, and tell your friend, look at that bird. They cannot see the bird, even if it's bright red or something 
until that bird moves. So motion, a, a lot of predators, they don't really key in on seeing you. They key in on seeing you move. So motion attracts the attention of predators. So when we freeze, we not only stop moving overall, but the big thing, we also stop breathing very deeply. Because if you breathe really shallowly from your, you know, the top of your chest, you, that, and you kind of pant a little bit, you know, you're, you're not breathing deeply, you're not moving. And so it's great, you're frozen, you, you're a little less likely to be detected by a predator, but at the same time, you're not getting enough oxygen in, and your body is starting to go, you know, I'm really... I'm like suffering here and it sends out these distress signals that you think are from being uh, um, afraid in front of the audience. But the reality is it's just because your body is saying, you know, I'm not getting enough oxygen. I'm going to make you uh, like really be nervous because you're feeling panic because you're not getting enough air. So that's part of why I think breathing is such a critical critically important part of staying in the flow. Um, you know, it's, it's part of that. Mm. So we talked a little bit before about this fast learning, you know, just one night before exam. <laughs> and then I said, it doesn't work on the piano. And I think you wanted to say something, but then we, we went back and back and back and back. So maybe let's continue on that topic. One thing I... I do want to bring up, though, is the idea that in education systems, there simply has not been enough appreciation for the fact that procedural, that is habitual kind of learning, is critically important to help make all our learning easier. When you've practiced something enough that you don't even need to think about it, you can just, your fingers can do it all on their own in some sense, that sure makes things easier so that you can kind of pile on more complicated thinking at the same time. Do you know that, for example, little children in Japan, they have, they're taught flash anzan as a technique to add numbers. And what these children can do is you can flash like in two seconds, they will flash up 10 three-digit numbers on a screen in two seconds. So you can barely even see the numbers. You know, it'd be 427, 977, 490, whatever. It'll flash 10 groups of those numbers. And these little kids can add them all up in their head while they are simultaneously performing a verbal game. And it's just that they practice so often that their procedural system can do it with one part of their brain, even as they're do consciously thinking of something else with another part of their brain. So I just, I think that the, that habitual procedural basal ganglia kind of learning has really been um, dismissed out of hand as kind of drill and kill sorts of learning. And 
that's uh, that's really too bad because it's more like drill allows for skill mm. and and that's that's very important yes i guess what you're saying that this long term learning slow learning is uh, undervalued and now everything you know fast paced quickly learn new information and move on kind of that's right that's exactly right um and also So let's say you're learning to read. They will often say to children, oh, you just learned to read by reading because that's how you learn to speak. But actually, that's not true at all. You do not learn how to read like you learn to speak. So um, you, that's why learning bit by bit with little phonics. Oh, a K makes a K sound and an F makes a F sound. And then children gradually learn to build those together. That's uh, that's been dismissed by many modern educators, and it's um, it's really a shame. And it, it's all part and parcel of this neglect and um, kind of uh, almost a deliberate attempt to malign the important part of learning, which is procedural learning. Hmm. And I think I have two questions, again, from my listeners, which really connects nicely to the topic we are talking about. So first one was, um, what are the most effective techniques of speed learning? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. Speed learning. <laughs> the most, the most effective, first is to focus intently with no disruptions, So um, that means don't, in most cases, don't have music going in the background. I mean, if you're learning something easy, um, that's okay. But if it's really your speed learning and it's something really, really difficult, just focus completely. Turn off all disruptions because every time a phone rings or this, you know, that, that calls you away, it's like uprooting a plant. All of your neurons get pulled off what you were doing, and it takes a while to get back into what you were doing. So intense focus without disruption is the first key if you really want to speed learn. Now, I'll give you a second key of speed learning, which your listeners will probably not like. But the, the, the next most important thing is to already know a lot about the topic. The more you know, the easier and the faster you can learn. So for me, for example, if I'm learning a new word in Russian, it's easy. I mean, it's relatively easy. I can, I've already, I, I can write in Cyrillic. I already kind of have a, a sense of what the, the framework is. So if I'm learning a new word, I can often put it together with other words that I already know. So whether you're learning art or how to play the piano or you're, whatever you're learning, the more you know about that topic, the easier it's going to get to uh, to learn more about that topic. So, and part of it is just that um, when you're first beginning to learn anything, it's often not the funnest thing. It's only after you've learned some about it that it starts to become fun. 
So uh, I think that's a very important idea to remember. It, it, when you first start on anything, it can seem quite unpleasant. But um, it, the more you know, the more you begin to like it. I, I mean, I, I hated, I mean, I totally, totally hated. In fact, I remember in eighth grade being brought to the dean of students because I refused to pay attention in math class because I hated it. And I would sit there reading a book and if the teacher would come by and he'd take the book and I would just get another book out and I'd start reading. I was really an obnoxious student. And, you know, so they sent me to the Dean of Students and I remember saying, you know, I don't care. I will never, ever use math in my entire life. I hate it and you can never make me learn it. I mean, I was awful. And now I love math. And part of it is just sort of, you know, I went out in the military and I found out that, hey, guess what? It's harder to get a job at the kinds of things I'm really interested in doing if I don't have some kind of math background. So that made me open my mind a little bit to start trying to learn math. And then the more I learned, the more I start going, wait, wait a minute, what have I been missing all these years? This is incredible. And uh, and so the more you learn, the the faster you can learn more. Hmm. It was also interesting that in one chapter where you wrote about Nelson Dellis, he wrote, tell your brain to focus. Yes, yes. And I think that that is, uh, that's a, a helpful way to approach things. It, it's basically telling your brain that you, what you want it to do. And it's trying to motivate your brain to put your focus on things. And because it can be so easy to be a little distracted when you think you're learning something, um, you know, you're, you're learning, but you're kind of looking out the window or there's, you're hearing a conversation and you kind of, if you tell yourself you really want to focus it just, you're telling yourself what to pay attention to. And that can really help you to pay attention better. Even if you're looking at a picture and somebody says, I want you to um, look at this picture and you look at it and it looks like some, you know, uh, functional magnetic resonance image of a brain. And you look at it and you're like, so what? And then you say, well, focus on the little gorilla in the upper right corner. Suddenly you see you've missed that there's a gorilla in this fMRI image. So telling yourself to focus actually can help you focus better. Mm. And what to do if the material is really, really difficult, almost like you feel physical pain from learning it? Oh, yes, that, that, is so, that can happen. And the best thing to do, I, I find, is you know, get all disruptions out and just think in terms of time. Do not think about learning the material. I have to learn this material. Just tell yourself... I've got to put in 25 minutes of focus time on this material. So if you turn it from learning the material, which activates those pain centers of the brain, it, when you even think about something you don't like or is difficult or you don't want to do it, it activates pain centers in the brain. So you don't want to think about, oh, I got to learn this stuff and I, I have to learn it in such a 
period of time is instead just think, I got to do 25 minutes of Pomodoro on this, and I won't let myself get disrupted or distracted. And when I've done 25 minutes, I'm going to take five minutes of me time to do whatever I want to that's just fun and nice and enjoyable. And breaking it up to think of the process, which is putting some time in, instead of the product, which is studying that that difficult material. Looking at it in that way can really help you to study in in a, a somewhat less painful way. And they've also found that if you study for, say, 20 minutes on something you don't like, after about 20 minutes, that pain in the brain starts going away. So that's why these Pomodoro sessions of 25 minutes of uninterrupted focus can be so incredibly helpful because they get you past that that painful period, at least for a little while. And the more you do some Pomodoros, the more and more your brain will get into it. My rule of thumb, though, is whenever I am starting something that's really difficult and really hard, that... I will just have to go through a few sessions of yucky yuck. This is just, I don't, I'm not liking this. It's unpleasant. But once I work, work through that, just by putting in a little bit of time, I start finding myself putting in a little more time than I had actually thought I was going to do. Because, wait a minute, I, wa- I wanted to finish this one you know, there's this one little other part I want to learn about right here. And and you trick your mind into becoming more interested. Hmm. So what would you say is the optimal time for focusing on one task? You know, how long it should, should be? Well, so Anders Ericsson had found that, you know, optimally around four hours, you know, maybe six at the most, but four hours is how much time people can put into things. But I'm really a big fan of the Pomodoro technique, which is you get rid of all disruptions, focus intently for 25 minutes, reward yourself with a five-minute break, and do this for maybe three or four times, and then take a half an hour break, or maybe you're done for for that session. So, so I do think that if you focus intently for two hours or four hours straight uninterrupted on a topic, you're actually not being as effective as if you put, if you have occasional little short breaks during that time, because every time you take a break, you're actually telling your brain, you giving your brain a little bit of time to relax. It's kind of like a sports person you're giving yourself a, a time to relax and you're also allowing your hippocampus to kind of whisper sweet nothings into the ear of your neocortex, your long-term memory, and help reinforce what you've just learned. So I think taking little sporadic breaks after every 25 minutes or so, it can be perhaps the most effective use of your time. Hmm. Okay, Barbara, I promise this is the last question. And, uh, <laughs> Such great questions. <laughs> how to fully concentrate on practicing when there's 101 problem around in head? 
Um, I am getting, with practice, I am getting much, much better at just saying, I am only focusing on this one thing. There can be a million things ahead of me. Um, sometimes I'll write them down. Um, but uh, my job is one thing. And I only focus on that. And I try to clear my brain of all other things. The, they said Napoleon Bonaparte, one of his great um, abilities was he could put other things out of his mind. So at any one time, he could concentrate fully on the one thing, then he would move on to the next thing. And he didn't allow himself to be distracted by the, you know, 101 other things that he had to be doing at that time. Uh, so he would just focus intently on one thing. And that's a skill that I'm really trying to learn to develop is, you know, I have a million things. I've got all these projects I'm working on and, and deadlines and all this kind of stuff. And I say, nope, quit thinking about all that stuff. You have one thing to do right now. What's the most important thing to do? Do that. And then you can, you know, go to the next thing. And I, I find that's really helping me. People are always like, oh, you're so productive. And it's all in the mental tricks that you, you, you learn to use uh, that, that can really help make you much more productive and in a happier person. Hmm. So just before we end, tell me about your future project. I think you're writing a new book, right? Oh, I have so many. Uh, so, uh, so right now, so I'm just doing the page proofs for my new book, which is uh, with, it, I'm co-authoring that with Beth Rogowski and Terrence Sanowski, uh, and it's called Uncommon Sense Teaching. And it's about the neuroscience, but it's not like, the neuroscience of teaching, this is your amygdala, calm your brain down and you will, you know, learn better. I mean, that doesn't really help you teach better. It's things like, what are the different systems of learning, like procedural versus declarative? How can you as a teacher or a learner um, use one system versus another system better? How can you help students learn better through one system or another? Um, how can you use curiosity to enhance uh, students? Um, like, if you're curious about something, once that curiosity is satisfied, it will release dopamine that like tr backtracks all along backwards to the neurons that have helped you uh, resolve your curiosity, and it enhances all of those links. So that is how you learn. And, and so, you know, all of these kinds of subjects are ones that we explore in this book. So I'm also, my, my co-authors and I are making a specialization on Coursera called Uncommon Sense Teaching. And this is, um, it, it's like a 10-hour uh, course on how to teach more effectively using insights from neuroscience. And then I've got another uh, massive open online course I'm doing with edX on learning like a pro. And that's related to a book, Learn Like a Pro, that will be coming out from St. Martin's 
in June. So I have two books coming out in June. One is Uncommon Sense Teaching and uh, from Penguin Random House, and the other is Learn Like a Pro from uh, St. Martin's. And I have two. I have a MOOC and a, an entire specialization. And then I've got another new specialization that I plan. Um, and uh, so it's lots of exciting stuff. But I have to think one thing at a time. So maybe after you launch uh, your book, Learn Like a Pro, we can do the talk again. <laughs> so oh, I feel like I'm learning so much from you because you are really an expert with something that involves procedural learning. And so much of what we do in academia is more uh, declaratively related, but yet we need to be bringing in insights from procedural learning. And I, I feel like you're giving them to me. Mm. But on, on from my own perspective, I wish I could have more other skills which would help me you know you know what i mean <laughs> whatever you have the grass is always greener on the other side <laughs> so, that's true so many people would love to have your skills so uh, uh it's actually it's it, they're they're skills that benefit and bless all of us so i mm. i thank you so much for uh you, Your talent is is really amazing. Thank you, Angela. <laughs> Not Angela. I'm sorry, Barbara. Uh, that, <laughs> Thank you, Barbara. Uh, my my working memory is you see is uh, is uh, kidding me. <laughs> well, they often say uh, the old joke goes: you can call me anything, just don't call me late for dinner. Uh, and <laughs> I'm pretty much that way myself. It's uh, it's it's kind of funny, um, but it's. You know, it's. It, I, I think it's interesting to talk to lots of different people because it really helps you to learn, even if sometimes it can be confusing, you know, when you're trying to hold all these things in your working memory as you're speaking with someone. Mm, yes. So thank you so much, Barbara. And I really hope that we can uh, repeat this talk again. I, I hope so too. I hope I might have some some more uh, interesting information for you, but actually it's just been a real pleasure. You, you have some really good insights. I feel like I've learned as much as you from this. Thanks for being here with us today. If you feel like anyone from your family, friends, colleagues would benefit from these conversations, please share it with them. This is the best way you can help me spread the news about this podcast. I also regularly share information about OpenArted on my Instagram and Facebook accounts. You can find these by my name or simply check the episode notes on the platform you're listening. Thanks again for joining and I hope you'll tune in next time.